Welcome to the Holistic Nutritionist Podcast, where you'll find inspiration and answers to how you can become the healthiest, happiest version of you using whole food nutrition, smart supplementation, movement, and lifestyle hacks. Your hosts, Natalie Burke and Kate Callahan, are degree qualified dietitians and nutritionists certified fitness instructors, speakers, and authors with extensive knowledge and clinical experience in the wellness industry. So sit back and enjoy the show. Today we have an interview with the lovely Linda Griprich. Linda is a naturopath, nutritionist, podcaster, writer, and yoga teacher with close to 20 years of experience in the health industry. Linda specializes in digestive health, namely SIBO and constipation. She has extensive experience in running healthy, effective and sustainable bowel care programs and has expertise in investigating and treating the underlying causes of gut disturbance. Linda has an intense interest in poo, which she is in great company here, and she's also the creator of the delicious Better Me Tea, a tea designed to promote improved gut health and digestion assisting those who struggle with constipation and sluggish bowel movements to go to the bathroom with ease. I absolutely loved this chat with Linda and I'm sure you will too. So let's jump in. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nutritionist podcast. Today, Nat and I are interviewing the wonderful Linda Griperich. I'm hoping I got that right. I was just practicing for a couple of minutes. Welcome along, Linda. Linda is an incredible naturopath. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me on, Natalie and, and Kate. I really appreciate it. And yes, you, you didn't botch up the last name. You did a good job there. I did the shoulder shake with it. You did, so. yes. The roll of the tongue and the shoulder shake. <laughs> Awesome. My son actually, he had a, a check nanny, so he is really good at rolling his R's like that, um, but I'm, I'm not so good. And my daughter's learning Maori. I'm just the Aussie bogan in between. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, today we're going to be talking all about gut health and, and everyone who listens knows that we are really, really passionate about gut health. So it's awesome to have an expert here. We just brought you on the podcast and we have your video on and you had that beautiful diagram of the digestive system right behind you. And I've had a little look into your blog and that you're the poo whisperer, which is very exciting. I love that. <laughs> Glad I'm not alone. <laughs> and you know, Nat, Nat and I always talk about the importance of um, digestive health and checking out your poo. So we're really excited to dive in deeper. But awesome. first, now, we always ask our interviewees the same question. What did you have for breakfast? You know what? During the week, it's generally a smoothie, but I tend to like my smoothies really thick. So it ends up being like a pudding that I use with a spoon. I, use, I eat with a spoon. I just love spoons. It's really odd. But... Um, so in the smoothie is just, it, I feel like it's a bit of a, a pill and a powder concoction at the moment because it, I'm doing a preconception care. So there's a lot of powders and then there's also the protein base. There's a fruit of some sort, whether it's a berry or a pawpaw, you know, I've got some cacao in there, cinnamon and, um, you know, nut butter and various other things. Yeah. So that's pretty much my standard Monday to Friday because it needs to be quick. And then on the weekends, it's just something different. Awesome. Now, I know that our listeners will be wondering this, but are there any specific concoctions, powder concoctions that you put in that are particularly supportive for preconception? I know that's not what we're focusing on, but I know that people will wonder that. Uh, Yeah, good question. And I think, you know, this really depends on what's going on for the person. But for me at the moment, I've got some Shadavari powder in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I also do a bit of seed cycling too. So I, at the moment, you know, a, a different points of the menstrual cycle you might be having two different types of seeds and so at the moment it, I'm in that first half of my cycle so I'm having you know uh, ground up flax seeds and pumpkin seeds um, what else do I have in that um, I put a bit of magnesium powder in there as well what else and yeah those are the main powders when it comes to my and cacao you know it's a, it's a lovely prebiotic and you know you want to be supporting your gut microbiome if you want to be supporting preconception care as well but you know after that comes a big you know 
onslaught of the supplements that I'm taking as well beyond the, the smoothie. Are you rattling around with all your supplements? I am, and I'm a little bit over it, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> Isn't it funny? Sometimes, yeah, I, sometimes I go through phases where I am doing like a therapeutic intervention for myself and I reappreciate all the recommendations I give to clients because like, sometimes yeah. I forget how like switched on you kind of need to be to take your supplements regularly if you're not someone that finds that easy. So it's kind of like a good reminder sometimes that, oh, Actually, it isn't as just simple as just take it. It's like, okay, actually, there is some like thinking about this. So I often like revisit that and I'm like, okay, must give more strategies to help people get their supplements in consistently. I love pill containers, to be honest. They work well for people. <laughs> well, I've got, a, I've got a bloody lunchbox. It's ridiculous. Like I've got this because I had a miscarriage. So it's, for me, it's just me just trying to really um, prime up my nutritional status to make sure I have a viable pregnancy and, and everything. And so I've got like a little lunchbox that it's just all in there and I take it out after I've had my smoothie and pop what I need to pop. But sometimes you just don't feel it. You just don't feel like popping the capsules. You don't feel like taking the powders. You just, it just doesn't sit well. So it's a, it can be, a, a, it is a commitment and it's a bit of an effort at times. So yes, it absolutely does make me appreciate um, my patients and, you know, how much am I actually giving them? What's actually really, really crucial for them to take right now, you know, and, and, you know, giving them instructions on how to take them when they don't necessarily feel like taking them. Can you soften the blow by putting it in something if it's got a bit of a sweet flavor or something like that? So yes, it's good to be the patient once in a while. Yeah, totally. Mm. Now, I think we should start off with our, with our questions, but first, before we, before we dive into those awesome questions, can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to become the Pooh Whisperer? Oh, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> how did I become a Pooh Whisperer? Well, I guess, you know, I was working for, uh, I was in naturopathic practice many, many moons ago in the early 2000s for about four years. And got totally burnt out because I was working some other jobs to support that business as I was growing it. And so then I left that and went to work for um, a supplement company, which was, you know, which is Metagenics for numerous years. And then I came out of that and uh, back into practice to work for a colleague friend of mine and then now on my own. And what I found, I was always interested in gut health, but what I found was that constipation was just rife and people were really... I guess, ashamed and embarrassed to talk about it. It took a lot of prodding sometimes to really drill down um, that that was an issue for a lot of people. So I, I guess I was just quite passionate with um, making it a light subject and I can have a bit of a nature that's a bit awkward and a bit dorky and a bit lighthearted. So I kind of wanted to infuse a bit of that into the content that I wrote you know, how I delivered it in my, um, my social media platforms and, you know, jumping on podcasts and all the rest of it, just to really um, drive home the message of why constipation is not something that, that we should ignore and um, to, to really look at the consequences of leaving those things unattended. And back in the day, I had um, many, many you know, gut health issues and, and one of them would be sluggish bowel movements in my late teens. And so, you know, I can totally appreciate that, you know, the feelings behind feeling toxic or um, sluggish or constipated. And I was always really shy to even talk about those things. I probably wasn't even aware of my body back then. So, um, yeah, that's where the passion lays with that. I just kind of wanted to talk about something that almost feels like a bit of an epidemic at times. And maybe that's just who I see in clinic because I see a lot of people with those issues. But, you know, it's, it's a big issue. Yeah, definitely. I can so resonate with so much of that story. I actually worked for biocuticals for a number of years. Oh, right. <laughs> Anyone listening that is a practitioner knows that those two are like kind of the leading Australian supplement companies. Um, at least they were for, I don't know if they still are in terms of numbers, but definitely the two that most people think of. And similar to you, did my own thing, burnt out a bit from doing two things at once and kind of a very similar journey. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's just you in terms of what you see. I treat, so I specialize in thyroid health and I definitely see a lot of gut issues. And it's funny because I think we're 
there's not a lot of conversation around what is normal. There's conversation around what is common, but there isn't conversation around what is normal. And you're totally right. Like some people are just very uncomfortable about discussing it. I mean, some people aren't and it's great, but I think, you know, for a lot of clients that I talk to at least, it they're not um, worried if they're not going to the bathroom every day. Whereas, and I think there's an assumption that that's, that's okay. Like I think constipation, a lot of people's heads is like, oh, I don't go for multiple days or weeks. Um, whereas constipation, at least in my mind, is if you're having anything less than one, you know, complete bowel motion a day. But it's interesting, isn't it? Oh, totally. And I think, you know, that comes down to a few things, doesn't it? I remember um, maybe having a conversation with my parents back in the day and they would say, oh, my doctor said it was fine to go, you know, three times a week. And, you know, I'd, I'd sit there and debate with them, but they didn't really understand the consequences of not going. And you working with thyroid health, you would, you would truly understand that how much constipation can affect our hormones and in, in impact our thyroid health. So, you know, the consequences are far and extending if when our, when our elimination channels don't work well. But I think many people maybe do not understand that and so therefore they're comfortable with that feeling of not going every day some may feel slightly bloated some may not have that symptom and, and may not um you know recognize that maybe joint pain or, or maybe thyroid issues or you know resistant weight loss as being an issue or having constipation as being one of its drivers and so you know that's where the education comes into it doesn't it you know yeah it's like right. me leaving a, something with the car unattended because i'm like well it still works still gets mm -hmm. made to be <laughs> and then it totally crashes because i have no idea why i should have checked on that in the first place mm. yeah i know i think constipation is one of those things that i don't know sometimes i'm like how do people ignore it i mean because i i had a lot of gut issues growing up myself and i was chronically constipated at one point like i went at, i'm totally have no filter but <laughs> i went one day <laughs> and got an abdominal scan and there was like fecal impaction up in like, like up towards my ribs almost. And it was like horrible. I ended up having a parasite H pylori at that time. Um, but it's just crazy. Like how much constipation can make you feel sluggish and you kind of don't realize how amazing you can feel when you are having regular bowel motions and everything digestively is functioning well. It's kind of like this newfound liberation when it happens. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that was a really good point that you just touched on then, Nat, in terms of our gut health when things are working well, we feel really good. And we really wanted to pick your brain a little bit more, Linda, about how our gut health impacts our mood and how our the bugs in our belly, the microbiome impacts our mood. Can we talk a little bit more about that and the relationship between the two, please? Yeah, absolutely. And if I go on a tangent, please just rein me back in. We like um, tangents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's many ways that the, the gut microbiome communicates with the brain and vice versa. It's not a one-way street. You know, the brain communicates with the gut as well. So the ways in which they communicate with each other, and I'm going to break some of these down, but in a nutshell it's through your microbial metabolites like B vitamin production because your microbiome or your bacteria produces B vitamins. And then you've got things like butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid. And again, I'm going to go through all these specifically in a moment. So a butyrate is one way that they communicate with each other. The vagus nerve, which many people have heard about, is a way in which they communicate with each other. And that's basically that long wandering nerve that, you know, starts at the brainstem and then moves all throughout the organs and into the digestive system. You've got other, other things like intestinal permeability. So that, when that's compromised, for example, that is one way in which the gut can communicate with the brain because we're looking at LPS. And that's another thing that I want to get into in a moment. LPS being lipopolysaccharide, otherwise known as endotoxin. Uh, the production of neurotransmitters. So our bugs, our gut bugs, produces neurotransmitters like GABA and serotonin and dopamine and noradrenaline. Uh, insulin resistance is another way that it communicates with the brain. And also um, what, we, what people may not be familiar with is this pathway called the chineurinine pathway. So our gut microbiome and production of things like LPS 
again, which I'll get into in a moment because you're probably thinking, what the hell is that, is that those things can compromise the way in which tryptophan is broken down. Tryptophan is broken down generally. We want it to be broken down to 5-HTP and then serotonin, so making serotonin more available to us and, you know, creating more of the production of serotonin. Serotonin is that, you know, that feel-good hormone. So when the, the gut microbiome is out of balance or when there's an excess of, say, LPS in the system, that endotoxemia, we can shunt the tryptophan in a different pathway, which is a chironeuronine pathway, which makes less serotonin um, more available to us as a human. So therefore, that alters the mood. So those are a bit of a summary, but did you want me to get into some of those in particular? Because that's just me spraying it all out there in the different, in the ways in which they communicate with each other. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. I think probably the first um, place to start is maybe explaining what LPS um, is and um, maybe expand on the involvement of, of LPS in terms of what, what it does in our body. Yeah, absolutely. So. LPS is like a structural component of the external membrane of gram-negative bacteria. And, you know, some of the bacteria that are gram-negative may be E. coli, for example, but there are many more. So as bacteria die off, um, and bacteria actually have a short lifespan, as they die off, LPS is, is shed into the lumen and it can create numerous things in the body. Now, we all have a certain amount of LPS in the gut. However, the amount differs and we only really want minuscule amounts it's when it's in excess it can create a problem and so it can create uh, systemic inflammation for example and we know that those that have depression have this underlying low-grade systemic inflammation going on it can also impact the blood-brain barrier it can also you know affect you know cause things like uh, uh, brain inflammation and again that can contribute to alterations in the mood it can also affect the intestinal permeability so otherwise known as leaky gut and that's a bit of a vicious cycle because when we have lps we get inflammation in the gut and that can create leaky gut and that leakiness leads to more LPS going into the bloodstream and therefore inflammation. But that inflammation and that endotoxemia, that LPS in the blood is called endotoxemia, that can create leaky gut. So that's a bit of a vicious cycle. So LPS kind of underpins a lot of the mood alterations and can really affect the way in which we feel in the way of depression and anxiety. Did you want me to get into, like, say, ways in which we um, end up with higher levels of LPS, like certain things like diets and other things like that? Because that will probably land for people too. Yeah, that'd be great. And also how you know if someone's actually struggling with this. I mean, we know that things like anxiety and depression are multifactorial. So yeah. how do you know that it's the LPS and um, the endotoxemia causing these issues or, or contributing to these issues? What are some warning signs for you? Yeah, I guess you, you definitely want to be looking at some symptoms. So I can get into that. But you also, I mean, luckily, some of the, the newer, the metagenomic stool testing actually shows LPS in the system. Um, so certain parameters, I guess, you want to be looking at when it comes to stool testing, for example, that may indicate that someone may have you know, issues with depression or anxiety, and obviously you're going to be looking at their symptoms and what they're telling you as well. But you might see inflammatory markers like CRP, interleukin-6. Um, you might be looking at, um, you know, leaky gut parameters as well. So the lactulose and, and mannitol test would mm -hmm. be one way. Um, other things, you know, when it comes to, I'm just thinking dietary-wise, if you're looking at someone's diet, if they're binge shrinking, for example, or if they're having an excessive amount of alcohol, that can impact the gut lining and integrity, but can also increase blood levels of LPS. Um, when they're using medications such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, such as like ibuprofen or even... Um, uh, you know, PPIs that can increase LPS concentrations because it really does disturb the intestinal lining 
and permeability. If someone's got like a very Western diet that is high in fat and low in fibres and, you know, prebiotic rich foods and resistant starch, that can certainly lead to high levels of LPS in the system. And the reasons why is that, and when I'm talking about higher fat levels, that could include things like even animal fats, like saturated fats and even coconut oils, you know, being, being included in that saturated fat picture. And I know a lot of us these days are eating lots of those foods. And if we're having excessive amounts of them, um, what we might be doing is affecting the gut lining and integrity. And, and again, I mentioned that if there is that leaky gut present, we can be creating more LPS concentration in the blood but also we could be producing lots of bacteria that go under the phylum of um, proteobacteria and bacteroides. And these particular um, bacterias love to feed off bile. So not necessarily feeding off fat altogether, but when you're eating lots of fats, you're producing more bile to break down that fat. And so these bacteria like to feed off the bile. So if we're eating lots of fats, we're producing more of these bacteria that are gram-negative bacteria that contain LPS. Um, hopefully that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> so you want to be looking at that in the stool as well. Like high, do they have high levels of proteobacteria and bacteroidetes and those sorts of phylum? But I guess, you know, you want to be marrying it up with their symptoms. You want to be looking at those parameters in the blood as well as those inflammatory parameters in the blood, as well as the, um, the stool testing would be uh, what I would be. And I would always just be looking at their symptoms. I would be looking at, you know, looking at their diet, looking at what they might be experiencing, um, what sort of inflammatory symptoms like depression or anxiety are they experiencing, but are they experiencing other things like bloating or joint pain or, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, sorry, Nat, before you said <laughs> Where can the light go? <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going on a, a little tangent. So you mentioned the excess fats, and I think that's really interesting to just touch on there because, you know, in the last 10 or so years, we've really been given that permission to go back to eating those traditional fats and some of those saturated fats. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you think we've taken it to the extreme? You know, we've gone, okay, we can now, we know these fats aren't going to give us heart disease and now like we're just going to eat all the fats all the time because there's no issue. But what I think what you just touched on then is we can have too much and that can negatively affect our gut. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think we, a lot of us have gone too far, me included. I mean, I did my stool test and I tell this story often because it's a personal experience of this LPS situation. So that's why I'm so passionate about it because we're using you know, say, for example, coconut oil, butter and ghee, which are great. I'm not saying no saturated fats altogether. They're awesome for us, but just in moderate amounts. And, you know, up your monounsaturated fats, your olive oils, your macadamia oils, your avocados and those sorts of things. But my um, stool test, I think it was last year, um, showed quite a bit of these bile-eating bacteria. And uh, so I would assume at the time I was using a 16S RNA um, stool testing and it didn't show the LPS concentrations, but I was producing a lot of these gram negative bacteria that would be creating LPS, high levels of LPS concentrations in my blood. Um, so biophilia, Wadsworthia and, and various different species. And so I changed my diet through the guidance of a health practitioner because we all need all of that. And um, I was having lots of coconut oil, lots of ghee, lots of butter, you know, lots of animal protein, you know, lots of those things. And yes, I was still having olive oil. I love olive oil and avocado and all the rest of it, but it was probably more skewed in the saturated fat direction. So recently I just did a stool test and I've been, my diet's probably changed in the last five months where I've started to increase the monounsaturated fats and decrease my saturated fats. And I've started to bring in, big gasp for everyone, a bit of uh, legumes. And I know that, yeah. So I've started to bring in, well, I know, I know. <laughs> I actually do as well. <laughs> so I started to bring in, you know, well-selected legumes like, um, you know, and well-prepared, you know, making sure that, you know, you've broken them down with soaking it overnight or if you've bought, you know, really good organic um, brand like Cerise Organics, you know, knowing they're sitting in the... Uh, water, say, for example, the lentils for some time, and then you rinse it off thoroughly. So I've brought in certain legumes here and there, 
just to start to improve those concentrations in my diet because I wasn't getting a lot of legumes, to be honest. I hadn't had it for a long time. So I started to bring in lentils, black beans, maybe a bit of chickpea, um, and those were the main ones. And after four to five months, my butyrate levels had increased. And butyrate, which I mentioned before, is one way that the um, microbes communicate with the brain. Butyrate is a short-chain fatty acid and it's like the main fuel source for your uh, intestinal lining, like your colonic cells. And so it really helps to support the gut lining and integrity, but it's also really anti-inflammatory as well. And it helps to really decrease levels of LPS concentrations in the blood, which is really important. So my butyrate levels had increased because I was bringing more of that sort of um, resistant starchiness and those sort of fiber-rich, prebiotic-rich foods into my diet. My diet was very heavy in vegetables, which was awesome. It was always that way, but it was lacking those um, other forms of prebiotic fibers. So that had increased, but also those um, proteobacteria, those pro-inflammatory gram-negative bacteria is, had decreased dramatically. So my microbiome had shifted to one, and my LPS concentrations, because I'm now using the shotgun metagenomics, which shows LPS concentrations, the LPS concentrations were minuscule. So I had changed it dramatically within, you know, four to five months because I had changed a lot of those parameters that really increased LPS concentrations in the blood. Um, did I go off on tension there? But <laughs> yes, I think to, to, to answer your question, yes, I think that we do <laughs> take it too far. <laughs> And I certainly did. Like, I love fats. I really do. And I think that it just needed to, I probably went too far with, you know, um, those were my main cooking fats, fat, butter and ghee and, you know, coconut oil. And probably a lot of people um, would resonate with that. Or they're making, you know, paleo desserts with a bucket load of coconut oil and, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's a good point. And I definitely have had that same experience. I went too far in the other direction at one point as well. But I think a question I have, because I'm just thinking of the listeners listening, um, as listeners do. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have noticed if you didn't bring it <laughs> I was having a chuckle. But, you know. <laughs> Maybe there's something wrong with my brain gut communication. Um, anyway. Um, so I guess I treat a lot of people with SIBO and parasites and for a lot of those people listening, they would get really symptomatic if they just started increasing these kind of really resistant starch and fiber rich foods. So if you have someone that comes to you who perhaps is eating a higher fat diet because they can't eat higher kind of fiber foods because it gives them such um, digestive discomfort what would be the process that you'd recommend for them in terms of being able to get to a place where they can actually eat something like legumes or um, higher, I guess, FODMAP foods without the symptoms, but still getting the benefit of um, all the wonderful kind of butyrate production and healing their um, colonocytes or, or gut lining? Oh, great question. And especially I, I work with SIBO as well, so I can completely appreciate that. So I think the first thing I would do would, uh, I tend to use the, the biphasic diet. So for starters, I would check their fats and oils intake. Like, is it more skewed in a saturated fat direction? Because that's an easy one that they can change. You know, they can change that to, to be more skewed in the monounsaturated fat that's not going to really affect their um, symptom picture when it comes to um, SIBO, I guess. Then you, then probably I would look at things I could include. Like you definitely just make sure that you're getting enough vegetables with every meal, you know, aiming for about two cups, you know, per meal. That may not be realistic for breakfast, for example, but just aiming for around about that much per, per main meal um, of the allowable SIBO-friendly vegetables. So you're getting a bit of fiber there that are going to be feeding your gut bacteria and short-chain fatty acids. I would also, as part of that biphasic diet, lentils is allowed. So that would really be case by case. So you just want to be looking at, okay, make, seeing if they can tolerate a really small amount of um, well-prepared lentils. So making sure they're soaked and the water's discarded, it's rinsed well, all that sort of thing. Um, that's probably 
better tolerated for a lot of people, but just small amounts, maybe a teaspoon, maybe a tablespoon in a meal once every second day, see how you tolerate that. Expect a little bit of gas, that's normal, um, but hopefully that's self-limiting and that will sort of um, reduce over time. If they can tolerate it, I know that with my SIBO treatments and even during the antimicrobial treatment, I tend to give partially hydrolyzed guar gum and that's a good way to increase your short-chain fatty acids. Uh, so you could use certain prebiotic supplements like that. Some are better tolerated than others. So partially hydrolyzed guar gum, I would start at a very low dose and then increase to the maximum dose that I want to give them because people are going to be responding differently. And it could just be that you're giving them like, you know, the tip of a knife for a week and then increasing it to a quarter of a teaspoon and then increasing it to one teaspoon, you know, on a weekly basis until you get it to a, a place that you want to get it to. Um, and omega-3s, so uh, things like fish oil, if you really wanted to, um, I guess, in, if you suspect that there's higher levels of LPS concentrations in their blood or in their body, then you omega-3s. Uh, in the way of fish oil can be very supportive in a few ways. It really, it's, it's been shown to improve gut microbiome diversity, but it also helps to decrease LPS absorption in the blood. So what saturated fats do is actually bind to LPS and, and make it, I guess, they, they increase the absorption of LPS, whereas omega-3s helps to reduce LPS concentrations in the blood. So those are, those probably are the main areas that I would look at when it comes to someone that does suffer with, and I wouldn't go too hard with legumes, absolutely not, especially in the early stages. So after you've done the antimicrobial work, if you've reduced the, the gas levels um, to where you want them to be, I would then start to reintroduce some foods eventually. So maybe a couple of months of, um, so, you know, not maybe not straight after treatment, you want to kind of, you know, try to avoid that sort of um, relapse that can happen with SIBO. So you want to keep them on, say, the phase two of the biphasic diet to, uh, so still lower FODMAP and then start to eventually do a bit more gut restoration, improve the gut lining and integrity. Um, because again, like I said, that really supports reducing LPS concentration. So making sure you're using nutrients that really support the gut lining and integrity. And some of those can be, um, you know, like I mentioned, the partially hydrolyzed guar gum could be glutamine, but at the adequate doses, people just don't take enough of glutamine. You actually need uh, 10 grams or more a day. A lot of the supplements out there do not have that amount. Um, things like vitamin D and zinc are important too. And then I would start to just reintroduce some foods like slowly, slowly, maybe bring some well-prepared black beans in, um, maybe some sweet potato cooked and cooled um, and that sort of thing. Because you can have, in the biphasic diet, you can actually have white potato in phase two. So you could probably bring that cooked and cooled in to give them that resistant starch um, earlier. So there's, there's various ways that you could work with that and still support um, gut restoration and short-chain fatty acid production. Hopefully there's some in there that, you can, that people might want to tap onto. Yeah, I love that. And I also use the biphasic diet. So for anyone listening, it's um, from uh, Narala Jacobi developed it, I believe, um, for, and you can get it from SIBOtest.com. I'm pretty sure people can just download it even if you're not a practitioner. But I would obviously always recommend that you work with someone because there's more to it than just the diet side of things. Because absolutely, yeah, as you said, Linda, it's you know antimicrobials, it's rebuilding that gut microbiome, and I definitely agree with you. You there with the partially hydrolyzed guar gum? I find that works really well for people as long as it's like a start low, go slow kind of um, situation. And I think another important point which you made is that, you know, a little bit of gas when we're eating these kind of foods like legumes is normal as long as it's kind of transient and not like so uncomfortable and gives you pain. I think sometimes when people have had a lot of gut issues and perhaps they've gone through a gut treatment protocol and then we start getting to this reintroduction phase at the first sign of any gas, they can freak out and think, oh my God, it's back. And I think you made a really good point there of just like, hey, you know what? A little bit of gas, as long as it's transient and it's not kind of, 
you know, large, large amounts and really uncomfortable or really smelly, like it's okay. Like there are bacteria in there fermenting those carbohydrates and they are going to produce a little bit of gas because I think, yeah, it can kind of get a bit scary for patients sometimes. Totally. And, you know, that's what happened to me too, not having like legumes as a big part of my diet for a long, long, long time. You'd imagine if you bring introducing something new into that environment, you're changing the environment, you know, and so you're creating these different types of bugs and they're going to, you know, you're altering things. So I expect to have a little bit more gas and, and maybe in the early stage, a little bit more bloating as it all it starts to adjust. But you're right, if there's extreme pain or if it's debilitating, like doubling over, you know, really, really uncomfortable, then, and if it persists, then it's something that you might want to not bring in at this stage and do some more repair work before you do start to reintroduce those things. Yeah, definitely. So I guess in, in relation to maybe taking like a slight um, step backwards, in relation to, you know, testing with all these kind of situations, I'm particularly interested in how we can actually use stool testing to help navigate treatment for a patient that might be you know, having mental health issues in relation to depression or anxiety um, and that kind of thing? Like where, where would you start with that and, and what do you see as being useful in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And so I, when I'm looking at a stool test, what I really want to be assessing is their diversity of different bacteria in their gut, um, species richness. I want to be looking at levels of, say, um, anti-inflammatory sort of bacteria like Fecalobacterium prosnitzii and uh, Bifidobacterium. So making sure they've got enough of that and they're not deficient in those particular uh, bacteria because they really are anti-inflammatory in the body and they, they support us when it comes to, because like I said, there is that low-grade systemic inflammation that occurs in depression and anxiety. I'd be wanting to look at levels of those gram-negative bacteria, so proteobacteria, bacteroidetes, um, even our stippies and um, enterobacteria. So those things can indicate that there's higher levels of LPS in the system and uh, that we're producing more systemic inflammation and that it might be damage to the gut lining and integrity. Um, and like I said, with the newer, the more sensitive type of stool testing, like the shotgun metagenomics, they can go down to you know species and strain level, but they can also show us um, metabolic pathways and microbial genes, but they can show us LPS concentration specifically. So those are the main things that I'd be looking at when it comes to stool testing, just to sort of, and like I said, I'd want to be doing some blood work too. So I'd probably want to be doing, um, you know, looking at the inflammatory markers in their blood as well. Great. And then, and so with that information, what are some general things that you would be recommending to help support the gut and the brain relationship for your clients? Yeah, there's, and, and a lot of them I've probably mentioned already, but let's go over them again so people can really drive it home and start it today. So I guess the, the main things that you want to be doing is you want to be really reducing the inflammation in the body and you want to be producing more of the bifidobacterium and fecalobacterium species. So certain prebiotic supplements like lactulose, FOS and GOS um, uh, can be supportive in increasing those species, but also things like daily consumption of fiber-rich foods, polyphenol-rich foods, so those colorful, richly, you know, fruits and vegetables that act as um, food for bacteria that, and produce short-chain fatty acids. Um, things like resistant starch. Also, you know, I did mention probiotic-like foods. Also decreasing the amount of fat, so decreasing the amount of saturated fats in the diet can really be supportive. Um, also making sure that you're avoiding the Western diet, so high fats and low prebiotic-rich foods and lower whole foods. Um, what else can we be doing? We can be looking at decreasing alcohol intake if, you're, if you excessively drink alcohol or if you're a binge drinker that can really increase the absorption of things like LPS and interfere with the gut lining and integrity. Um, fish oil can be really supportive as well. So getting that in a food in food as well as supplementation for some. And those are the main ones and making sure that you're not having an excessive amounts of omega-6 in your diet because that can increase the absorption of things like LPS. 
And what would be the main sources of omega-6? So your, like, so your vegetable oils would be your main sources of omega-6? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're talking things like canola, sunflower, yeah. safflower, soybean. Absolutely. Yep. Those what are your ones. thoughts on baking with like almond flour and the uh, content of omega-6 in those? What's, what's your opinion on that? Oh, you know, good question. <laughs> I haven't really thought about that. I, um, oh, I guess in moderation, I wouldn't be doing it every day. I don't have a big issue. I, I just make sure that you're getting really good quality of when it comes to your source of the um, almonds. Like and, and preferably organic wherever you can, just to avoid any sort of pesticide, um, you know, use on them. But yeah, no. What's your thoughts on them? Sounds like you've got I, a bit of you, you some <laughs> ideas around that. <laughs> I generally recommend not going overboard with them. Not going nuts. Not, not going, going nuts. nuts. <laughs> yeah, I generally say well, because you know it, I like to think of how we would have eaten things back in the day, and you generally wouldn't have a cup or two of ground almonds that you're going to chuck in the oven, you would be shelling your almonds yourself and then eating them in small quantities in that whole food form mm. rather than baking them at high temperatures, which could potentially negatively impact those polyunsaturated fatty acids, those omega-6 fatty acids. Mm. Potentially. Yeah. That's my thoughts. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I think some people tend to fall in the habit of just kind of like, paleofying everything in terms yeah, totally. of like oh i need like a paleo cookie and i need like a <laughs> um or like a i need a raw vegan like donut and you know the most common things that are used in those kind of recipes are nut flours and so i feel like i'm with you guys like moderation um is key it's not like you have to avoid it completely but kind of not making it like your daily snack i think sticking to more um unprocessed whole foods is a better way to go for sure absolutely absolutely and the, and the one thing i did did forget to mention was like um making sure you're not getting enough of like that free fructose like the you know high fructose corn syrup because that actually does increase the levels of lps in the system too and that can include you know that those sort of things you find in like soft drinks or fruit juices or fructose rich drinks but not whole fruit so I want to you know, get people to understand it's, it's not avoiding whole fruit. Whole fruit mm. is really important and you've got the fibre component to it as well. But it's just the soft drinks and the fruit juices and the fructose-rich drinks that you want to be kind of, you know, decreasing in your life. Yeah. What are your thoughts on dates? I know a lot of people will make baked goods with dates and then there's a big camp of saying no dates. I don't have a, a particular opinion on this, but I would like to. <laughs> would yeah. Like to. <laughs> so I, th I think what you were saying before, though, like in moderation, you know, absolutely in moderation. I don't think dates are something that should be like an everyday handful consumption sort of thing. I think, you know, if you, you have a date and a smoothie here and there, no big deal. Um, but again, it goes down with the whole paleo raw foods thing. People are just probably... I don't know if they're doing it much anymore, but in the early days when those raw treats started to come out, there was a bucket load of dates and nuts and nut butters and all the rest of it in those things. But I'd say in moderation, because I, I would think that that would start to really interfere with your um, blood sugar balance, having a bucket load of dates every day. Yeah, get your dates elsewhere, everybody. I think, like, it's it does. It adds up really quickly. And there, I don't know about you guys, but those, like, date ball things are addictive. No, like... I find it very hard to just have one little tiny date ball and then be like, okay, I'm satisfied. I'm, mm. I've got those in front of me. I'm like, somebody hide them. <laughs> but Once you pop. Be me. I know, right? It's like Pringles, but like yeah. whole food version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I definitely yeah. think that. One other thing I'm curious about your experience with, particularly in clinic, I don't know if you see it much, but um, what's your opinion on the gut health of people following a long-term or moderate, I guess, medium-term ketogenic diet? Because I think that there's a lot of benefits to keto in some situations, but I'm also interested to hear the, you know, the opposite side of that. Kate and I speak a lot about it in relation to hormones and that side of things and also thyroid health as it not being the best option in that situation. But what about for gut health? What's your opinion there or experience in, in practice? I love this question. And I'm with you there. Like I really do. I, I think that 
there are so many different varieties of the keto diet, isn't there? I mean, people, um, but for the most part, I think that these particular diets, keto, the keto diet was designed therapeutically, you know, for short term. I personally don't think it's, it's a long term diet that one should stay on. And in fact, like a very high protein and very low carb diet can decrease butyrate and butyrate producing bacteria. And that's that short chain fatty acid that we love and we want more of because it protects the gut lining and integrity and is anti-inflammatory to the body. So I would be cautious of going keto for a long period of time. I think if you're using it therapeutically for a short period of time uh, under the guidance of a health practitioner, great but I don't see it as being beneficial for the gut microbiome long-term at all. And having said that, you know, and this might be controversial too, like I don't think low FODMAP for a long period of time is, is great for the gut microbiome either, you know? So I think, um, you know, that's my stance on keto. I think we, a lot of us have just jumped on the bandwagon and, and a, a jump a using it long-term uh, because maybe it, it has led to some weight loss or, you know, all the rest of it. But like you said, it can really interfere with hormonal health. And, and I've seen that in practice, absolutely. But also um, the gut microbiome too. And again, I can be um, an example of that because I went very low keto. I went keto, very low carb for a long time. And again, started to see all of those parameters in my microbiome that weren't fantastic for my overall health, even though physically I wasn't presenting with any major symptoms, like eventually that probably would have caught up to me. So um, yeah, that's where I stand with the keto. I think it serves a purpose, but again, just a therapeutic purpose, not a, not a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there and agree with the low FODMAP thing long, long term. I've had lots of people come to me and they've been following the low FODMAP diet for years to manage their symptoms. And I think if you're finding that you need to follow a low FODMAP diet to manage your symptoms, you need to go after the root cause because once you fix that, I find, you know, you can expand your diet so much more. And without symptoms, I think that, you know, needing to follow a low FODMAP diet is a hint to you that there's you know, an overgrowth, an imbalance or something there that needs addressing. And again, it should be a short-term therapeutic intervention type thing and then expand um, to be able to kind of include the most amount of foods with the least amount of um, symptoms. And it is totally possible, but I think working with someone in that kind of situation is really important because even just, I'm just thinking like listening to this, people are probably like, oh my gosh, like there's so many options and there's you know, there's benefits to this, there's benefits to that, there's this test, there's that strategy. So I really think, you know, when it comes to gut stuff, certainly there are things that you can practically implement yourself, but working with someone, if you do find that you still have issues after you've, you know, implemented some of the basic strategies of anti-inflammatory and trying to expand prebiotic foods and then, you know, if you run into a bit of a, a barrier there, definitely investing time and money into getting it sorted out because once it's sorted it's very easy to maintain good gut health once you've got more balance there would is that what you see linda yeah definitely and i like what you said there i think um and you might have experienced this as well where um you you might have someone that has come into the clinic they might have they might have have done a you know food sensitivity test and mm -hmm. they've ripped out all these foods from their diet and maybe they've gone on some antimicrobials, but they've done nothing to look at what is driving the fact that they're sensitive or they've become newly sensitive to all of these foods. There's been no gut restoration work or investigation on why that is happening. There's just been, let's take it all out. Let's kill off something yeah. and let's keep killing, 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 killing. And so I've had to often go in there and say, okay, well, what sort of gut restoration work have you done? It's not, it's not good enough to just come off the foods forever. Like why, why can't you tolerate this now? You used to yeah. be able to, there's a reason for that. So, and we don't want someone's diet to become so narrow. Like we want to be able to get as much of a um, like diverse diet as much as we can to, to create all these different types of bacteria that have, multiple different functions in the body that that support our overall health yeah agreed i'm not a huge fan i actually did a post about this the other day i'm not a huge fan of food intolerance testing oh me too because i just think 
if you've got leaky gut, which most people do if they've got any form of gut issue or inflammation, then of course you are going to have food intolerances and we can do a food intolerance test and then we can take out those foods that you're intolerant to. But all, all that will happen is the ones that you start eating the most of next will be the ones that you start to become intolerant to because you haven't actually addressed why there's a leaky gut in the first place. I think it can be like sexy and attractive to do a food intolerance test and be like, oh, I can't eat these foods, but it doesn't really solve the kind of root cause of it all. I think you're better off investing in a really good kind of um, stool test or if you're a big red flag for SIBO, then investing in the SIBO breath test um, as opposed to a food intolerance test in most situations. Absolutely. It's, it's almost just like a Band-Aid treatment but and i get that um it gives relief to people so i get that when you start to remove these foods that you've that has come up to be a bit of a sensitivity for you you then go okay i feel i feel great i feel good i've got less symptoms i'm less bloated less gassy you know i get that but there's there's that's not enough that's just you know mopping up the water on the floor sort of thing we're not turning it off at the tap so yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I very, very rarely, if at all, do the food sensitivity testing. Yeah, I mean, if people have, like, money to just throw everywhere, then I'm like, sure, if you want to do it, like, it's... it's I, love, I love testing, so if you want to do it, then we can. But, in like, most people, like, when it comes to functional testing, in my experience, can only afford usually one, one test. And so it's yeah. kind of like a decision between for me, a stool test or a SIBO breath test. And sometimes, to be honest, I do struggle with that decision of when they're coming back with symptoms of both, what do I, what do I test if they can only afford one? I would, I'm interested in your opinion on this if, if that happens to you as well. I mean, for me, I would say most of the time if they're coming back with red flags for both, like SIBO and maybe a parasite or dysbiosis, I usually lean towards the stool testing because I get more information um and then um but yeah i do definitely struggle with that decision sometimes i'm interested do you have that experience or what's your kind of thought process there oh, i'm definitely with you if they could do both that would be ideal <laughs> <laughs> but uh but again i if, if they have if they're coming up with all of this like many of the symptoms of SIBO and some of their past history show that they might have had a post-infectious um, gastroenteritis or something going on and something yells at me that, yeah, okay, you just really need to figure out if SIBO is present because I might tend to go there first because mm. I'll then, because the treatment for that is very specific, as you know. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, I just want to rule that out that that exists and it's, it's usually a less expensive test as well. Yeah, only like only less expensive by a little amount, but it's it's. I want to rule that out because that treatment's really really specific. But I definitely think you know eventually, if that comes out as being negative and they still experience quite a, quite a bit of symptoms, then I will you know encourage them to do the stool test when they can afford to do it, um, so we can get a bigger picture of the large bowel and what's going and on in there. Yeah, totally. And which, if you don't mind me asking, which stool test do you use at the moment? And is it one that patients can order without a practitioner or do people need a practitioner to order it? Uh, so the two ones that I have used um, lately, so I used to use the 16S RNA sequencing technique and, and I used to use the smart gut um, microbiome testing. Um, yep. So that can be ordered online through SmartGut, I think, but I, you would need to go through a practitioner to do the interpretation, as you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but now at the moment I use um, the Shotgun Metagenomics by Microba um, yep. because it's a little bit, like I said, it, it gets to the species and even the strain level and is a little bit more sensitive. So it detects genes from bacteria, archaea, fungi, protozoa, and viruses and can determine the abundance. So it's a little bit more uh, sensitive and specific. Um, and yes, they can do it online, but again, you'd want someone to interpret those results to you because you wouldn't know what to do with half of the information on there. Oh, totally. Badly. <laughs> it's like you need another degree. I, I, I agree. I, um, I love um, using kind of the DNA sequencing type ones and I've been using lately um, and I'm always open to changing because I think there's there's kind of pros and cons to every kind of gut test you do really like in terms there's of... There's not one perfect one is there? Yeah, so I've been using the GI map 
um, lately, oh, the one that yeah. was developed by Designs for Health, and I find that quite um, useful. It also tells you beta glucuronidase levels. Um, yes. Which is, in, I guess, for me, when I've got a lot of patients that have hormonal dysregulation, it is an interesting thing to see. But I'm going to look into the ones that you mentioned because I have I have used Smart Gut before, but I haven't used um, the other one. And yeah, they're all so so interesting. But totally, like if anyone orders one by themselves, like you just, <laughs> it's impossible. Like you look at it and be like, okay, I have no idea, except for maybe if they give you some kind of indicator but really the like the gold is in the detail for a lot of these things so it's really important that you do get a practitioner to kind of help you along that path yeah absolutely i agree i personally am quite excited about doing my own gut testing because i've been pregnant and or breastfeeding for the past five years and now i'm not so i'm going to get a poo ah. test oh we can't wait to look at your poo <laughs> yes have you have you um um have you read dr oscar serilak's book the postnatal no. depletion cure? No, actually. Not that you I, would need I, it. You probably have supported yourself prior, during and after, no doubt. Yeah. No, I did actually see that. I, screen, I screenshotted something the other day. I was just looking at it like, why did I screenshot that? And it was because of that book. So thank you for the reminder. The book is, yeah, Postnatal Depletion. And who was the author? Dr. Oscar Serilak. I had yeah. him on my podcast. He's awesome. And, you know, he speaks very much to the depletion that happens to women post-birth. Um, and that can last for up to 10 years, you know, and I guess, you know, you, <laughs> but, you know, for someone that's been supporting their health pre, during and after, then, you know, it's, it's not a given for every single woman, but for those that are quite healthy, they're probably less likely to be experiencing those symptoms, but it's awesome. It's really good, really supportive for women who think that they're going crazy because they feel so tired and they feel depleted. Yeah. Yeah. And they just accept it. So yeah, mm. definitely. Definitely something that we should all look into. Maybe we'll have to get you back to talk about postnatal depletion again. <laughs> but before we let you go, this has been awesome. So much information. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I guess probably the, the only thing I would say, I mean, we did cover a lot, but the only thing I would say is to, you know, don't ignore your symptoms, whether it be digestive symptoms or whether it be, um, mental health that, that you feel is a bit under par, like anxiety or depression, you know, seek the support of a health practitioner. There's always some place that you can start regardless of your um, financial situation and, and it can really make a huge impact in your life. And, you know, we've only got this, well, who knows if we've only got one life, but we, but, you know, we want to live the best quality of this life as we've got it. So, you know, you might as well seek the support and get some assistance so that you can start to change and increase the quality of your life. And your best life starts with And your food. best life. Yes, that's absolutely. Yes, and that's one thing I would like to say, though, the bowel movements. You want to make sure that you're moving your bowels every day for your gut health. That's absolutely what you want to be doing. Is otherwise, you're just recycling hormones and toxic waste and increasing inflammation and leaky gut and all the rest of it. I cannot believe I left that out. And not to mention. <laughs> Probably just over talking about it. <laughs> Pooing also releases endorphins. So you're missing yes. out on a good time every day. If Euphoria. You're not exactly. <laughs> Why are we leaving all this good stuff to the end? I know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What's wrong with us? <laughs> oh, so funny. All right, Linda. So where can people find you and, um, what kind of like, what services do you offer? Um, tell everyone, yeah, how they can get more of your brain. Beautiful. So thank you. Uh, so my website, lindagriprich.com is probably the best place to find me. Um, lots of content on there. You can also uh, obviously schedule an appointment if that sounds like something you'd want to do. But also I do have a podcast channel as well called Love and Guts and um, we go through lots of stuff related to gut health but lots of other topics in the way of health and wellness. And so, and yeah, better me tea. So I do actually have a tea to help encourage bowel movements, believe it or not. Um, so my website's probably the best place to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing an hour with us to talk about poo. We definitely appreciate it and um, so much good information in there and really exciting to know that, yeah, if, if people want to learn more, you do actually have a podcast and 
I think we will pop all of that in, in the show notes and hopefully have you back on to, to share some more about lots of different topics. So thank you and we will speak to you soon. Thanks so much, guys. I've had a lot of fun and it was just, yeah, really great to meet you both. Yes. You too, Linda. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Holistic Nutritionist podcast. Remember, we love to make the show relevant to you. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, just submit them to podcast at nataliekdouglas.com and we'll get them answered for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with a friend. And if you're looking for more info about how we can accelerate your journey to optimal health, you can find Nat over at nataliekdouglas.com and Kate at theholisticnutritionist.com. See you next time.